God, what's fun this week? What is fun this week? Gosh. Um, God, I had to go buy a new car this week. Oh, wow. But you ended up getting the same one that you had. <laughs> a new used car. A mo, but this one's new, this one's more recent. I have a Mini Cooper. The last one was a 2002 and I I drove her to 21 years right into the ground and the big problem is okay it's a 2016 in that time, cars have gotten smarter than I am. I'm afraid to drive this car. It does. It has all these features and computer things. I don't understand it. On Bluetooth, you can say call so-and-so and whatever. I know everybody else knows this. So anyway, let it be said. I tried to, I tried to call my daughter. I said, call Kate. And the next thing I knew, it was dialing Annette Benning. And... <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Oh God! What am I going to tell her? And I didn't know how to tell it to hang up, hang up before I bothered a movie star. So that's my problem this week. Welcome to the political scene, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Jane Mayer, and I'm joined by my colleagues Evan Osnos and Susan Glasser. Hi. Hi, Jane. Hey, Jane. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the 46th President of the United States of America, Joe Biden. One year into this war, Putin no longer doubts the strength of our coalition, but he still doubts our conviction. He doubts our staying power. He doubts our continued support for Ukraine. He doubts whether NATO can remain unified. But there should be no doubt. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided, and we will not tire. Joe Biden visited Kyiv this week to mark the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion and promised more American support to Ukraine. While the United States has approved tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine, largely with bipartisan support, the war is increasingly being pulled into domestic politics, with people like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis raising objections. Well, they have effectively a blank check policy with no clear strategic objective identified. And um, these things can, can escalate, and I don't think it's in our interest to be getting into proxy war with China getting involved uh, over things like the borderlands or, or over Crimea. So I think it would behoove them to identify what is the strategic objective, uh, but just saying it's an open-ended blank check, uh, that is not acceptable. Today, we're going to look at how the war has upended expectations. We're also going to take a look at whether it's upended American politics or has the potential to do that, as the far right and the far left appear to be coming together in opposition against the U.S. support for Ukraine. Susan? <laughs> well, you know, we're having this conversation, I have to start out by saying, on the, the one-year anniversary of this war, which is... You know, it's just, it's almost mind boggling in terms of, you know, its geopolitical impact. Tell yourself from 13 months ago, uh, you know, to take our frame, that you would be talking about the largest land war since the end of World War II on the European continent, uh, the incredible kind of geopolitical uh, uh, fracturing of an order that held more or less for, for many decades. Uh, you know, the scale of the conflict is something that I think few really anticipated. Obviously, Vladimir Putin didn't anticipate it. We're talking about several hundred thousand dead uh, and, and, and casualties on both sides of the conflict, millions of people's 
the lives have been upended. Uh, something like 8 million Ukrainians have left the country, 5 million more internal refugees. Uh, a million or more Russians have left Russia rather than participate in the war or to be a part of uh, Putin's regime at a time when they literally can go to jail for calling it a war and not a special military operation. So, you know, it's been a kind of a cataclysm. And obviously for American foreign policy and for President Biden, it's it's arguably been the defining test of his presidency so far. I think many people, really Republicans and Democrats, would largely say uh, they've been impressed by Biden's handling of this. But there is this sort of nagging concern that uh, the support for Ukraine uh, is is uh, broad but not deep. Uh, that a year into the war, uh, there are less people who support Biden's uh, support it, military assistance for Ukraine than in the opening months of the conflict. And of course, there's the there's the political context of the 2024 presidential campaign getting underway. And I think it's the kind of Trumpist America first. Uh, what do we need to do uh, with Ukraine? We have problems here at home. That political force, I think, is getting stronger by the day. It's certainly getting louder by the day. So we can talk about that. Evan, what do you think? Um, is I mean, the polls show there's still a majority of support for the U.S. support for Ukraine. Um, what are you seeing both in Congress and out there? Yeah. You know, there was a, a, a useful interview that was done the other day where the House Intelligence Chairman, Mike Turner, uh, said, and, and, and the reason why this is important is it can be sometimes hard to read from the outside what the kind of cloakroom conversation is in Congress because we're not having votes all the time that really get into this. And, you know, what he said is that, yes, you've heard some very audible objections from some people, but in his words, there are 435 members of Congress. There are probably 400 that are for continuing in this direction. He's a Republican after all. The objections that you are hearing are coming from people uh, by now a kind of familiar chorus. These are tend to be the ultra MAGA community, people like Matt Gates, uh, who has introduced a resolution with the um, blunt title of the Ukraine Fatigue Resolution. You know, what they're trying to do is to wrap this up in a critique of Biden about things like the economy. And, you know, it's worth pointing out, as he said, I think people are going to be sitting in a recession and wondering why we're sending so much money abroad. But we're not in a recession. In fact, we're in the opposite of a recession right now. The economy is strong. So there's a there's a kind of effortful politics going on here to try to tarnish Biden with the accusation that he's misusing American money and not paying attention to the consequences. But I, I don't think we should allow ourselves to be drawn into the idea that this represents a fundamental change yet. If you look at polls today, about 48% of Americans say they are in favor of sending weapons to Ukraine. That is down from a year ago, down from about 60%. But, you know, that's not going off a cliff. It's a direction. It's one to be paying attention to. First of all, I'm pretty wary of polls on uh, policy issues like foreign policy that people aren't necessarily day-to-day engaged with. To me, they're a kind of a lagging rather than a leading indicator. And what, what I see is that the dynamics in uh, the Republican, not only the Republican presidential race, but Republican politics more, more broadly have given an outsized platform uh, to those who are making uh, sort of bashing of U.S. support for Ukraine. That's that's just sort of a part now of the the kind of populist drift of the Republican Party. And, you know, it's it's 
Trump's longtime theme. Remember, one year ago, Donald Trump was praising Putin's strategic, quote unquote, genius for deciding to go into Ukraine, thinking that Putin would achieve an easy victory, which he did not achieve. Since then, of course, Trump has continued his essentially uh, pro-Putin uh, words and suggested that, you know, again and again, that he wouldn't support the aid for Ukraine. It's not that Congress is going to overnight get rid of this policy. Uh, but there was so much anxiety, in fact, about the results of the midterm election, that what you saw instead was the administration and the sort of more establishment Republicans getting together at the end of 2022, and passing a major new Ukraine assistance package with the hope that that would last at least, uh, say, another nine months or so before they would have to go back. Because it's not that the Republicans, even in the House, that a majority of them are against it. But what it is, is that this loud faction that holds Kevin McCarthy's speakership in their hands, his fate is completely tied up uh, with this group of ultra-MAGA, essentially pro-Russia constituency in the House Republicans. So let's talk about that remarkable Biden visit to Ukraine and to Poland this week, because I do think that is one of the reasons why they lean so hard into the kind of Churchillian optics this week is, is to send a message to the American public as well as to Vladimir Putin and European allies. Well, it, 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 I, I agree. It was a tremendous image that we saw of the president and that hug of Zelensky as the two have overcome various differences over time and they seem very united and that united picture very much sort of also transmitted the feeling of NATO united and and the democratic world united behind this 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 cause at the same time what you could see um, is uh, the flip picture on places on the you know far right uh, and even Fox um, media um, outlets where you know they're they've got Trump going to Ohio and kind of saying why is the president over there in Ukraine when we've got disasters domestic disasters to deal with here shouldn't his eye be on this isn't this what our focus should be shouldn't America be first basically if you boil it down to the people of East Palestine and to the nearby communities in Ohio and Pennsylvania uh, we have told you loud and clear, you are not forgotten. You are not forgotten. We stand with you, we pray for you, and we will stay with you in your fight to help answer and the accountability that you deserve. We'll have that accountability. It'll all be out there very clearly. I mean, I think, you know, the, the answer that anybody who's thinking about this could give is it's not a choice. We ought to be able to do both. We are, you know, the most powerful country and the richest country in the world. We shouldn't have to choose between helping democracy abroad and, and our people at home. But that's the choice that, that the Republican Party seems to be teeing up. I mean, is, is that why DeSantis is jumping into this? I think DeSantis is, uh, has some very alert antenna to where this is moving on a partisan basis. And you see this already reflected in some of the numbers. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's becoming a very distinct difference between the two. Republicans or, or people who lean Republican, about 40 percent are likely to say today that we're giving too much to Ukraine. On the Democratic side, that's only about 15 percent. So that is already uh, a large difference. And DeSantis is sensing that. I mean, I think, as you say, Jane, this is a case where 
a lot of the America first crowd, the sort of isolationist wing of the Republican Party, which after all now constitutes uh, most of the Republican Party, that they are using this as a moment to try to talk about the people that they believe are their constituency. There was a very revealing moment when J.D. Vance, now the senator from Ohio, visited this uh, this town, East Palestine, and he said at one point, kind of bluntly, uh, that the reason that he and Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump all visited was because, as he said to an interviewer, those are our voters. This is a deep right part of the country, a deep red section of America. He wasn't saying, you know, this is the most important thing happening in the world. This, this was an undisguised political maneuver. I was just going to say one other thing that I noticed over the weekend that I thought was really interesting. This is so far out on the fringes, but there was actually a rally at the Lincoln Memorial over the weekend called Rage Against the War, and it brought together the far left fringe and the far right fringe. Ron Paul spoke there against U.S. military support for Ukraine, and Tulsi Gabbard was there speaking. And believe it or not, in the crowd, there were people waving Russian flags. Um, and what they were what they were speaking about was they were denouncing what they called globalism, imperialism, and kind of the war machine. And you can see a little bit of the far left and the far right coming together. And I, I don't know whether it's going anywhere. Um, it's not the first time in American history we've seen left and right come together against wars. I mean, if you look back at the history of America first, it was, you know, among the people who supported it where it was both – you know, um, Charles Lindbergh and Norman Thomas and the socialists. So I don't know. But I'd say for the most part, the majority is solidly behind this effort still. What will change it? I don't know, Susan. What do you think? Well, I mean, first of all, I think you're right, Jane. And this has been uh, especially the case with Russia and the former Soviet Union for as long as I've been watching it. Uh, this this sort of odd coalition of far right and far left, in fact, uh, you know, has really been in place uh, throughout the last few decades. It just hasn't been loud. It hasn't been the, uh, you know, sort of center of the American political discourse until Donald Trump. Republicans have transformed their attitudes, frankly. Uh, they went from the hawkish party of being tough on uh, the Soviet Union and tough on Russia to uh, essentially being far more favorably inclined towards Russia and Putin than Democrats. Why is that? Donald Trump is the reason why. And, you know, it's so interesting what it says about where we think presidential politics is going, that DeSantis essentially has decided that to get Trump's voters and to get his ongoing support from Tucker Carlson, he needs to, you know, essentially be soft on Putin. But I wanted to just quickly, though, say, where are we in terms of the war itself and American support? Because one of the reasons we're talking, talking, talking about how long is this going to last? Is there a consensus? Uh, will Americans, will Western Europeans, for that matter, stick with the policy of assistance to Ukraine? Is because one year into the war, uh, it's not over. And in some ways, uh, Ukraine's success in showing the, the hollowness of Russia's military might have created a certain overconfidence. Russia occupies some 20% of Ukraine's territory today. And the real question of longevity is because it's not clear that anyone is going to be able to come out of the spring and summer fighting with a definitive uh, victory. And that means this could be going on for a long time, for years, possibly. And that's where this question of America's long-term political support, that's why we're talking about it.
The political scene will be back in just a moment. Let's talk about those efforts to freeze Russia out of the international community. Sanctions, trade embargoes, diplomatic isolation. Is it working? Yeah, I think this is a case where uh, it's very quick for the conventional wisdom on these matters to move. And there was a time where people were saying, oh, you know, they're not working at all. I think now we're the one-year point. It's important to recognize that these steps have had an impact. But it's also true that you have to keep the pressure on. There was a moment at the very beginning of the war when you had 140-plus countries that signed on to the idea of condemning what Russia was doing. But there were also about 40 countries that either abstained or did not. And what you've seen over the last year is that places that have been willing to continue working with Russia have had a big, important role in maintaining the war effort. Take India, for instance. Its trade with Russia has quintupled since the invasion began. Places like Turkey, like Georgia, which actually was one of the first countries that uh, was originally opposed but is now uh, sort of quietly returned to trading with Russia. And then the big player is China. The truth is that China has been buying a huge amount of Russian energy over the course of this, pumping money into the Russian economy. And they've also been supplying drones and micro microchips, things that have been hard for Russia to buy on the market. Those kinds of pieces are essential. And what you take away from this is it's not always enough to have this broad coalition of pressure if you have a few powerful players that are willing to go the other direction. Tell us, Evan, I mean, as our China watcher, how does this look from China? And, and what do you think their play is here? And what does this mean? You know, from the beginning, the Ukraine war has been a very awkward situation for China. They'd signed this, what they called the No Limits Partnership, just a few days beforehand. And then you had uh, Russia and China then suddenly um, embarked on this misadventure in Ukraine. Over the course of the last year, China has been playing what one analyst in Washington calls the Beijing straddle. They're trying to be publicly neutral, but of course, they're providing essential support to Russia along the way, rhetorical, diplomatic cover. Uh, And then there is this crucial moment now, which is that the United States made the rare decision really to go public with intelligence, suggesting, they say, that China is considering sending arms to Russia. If that happens, that really is a momentous change because it indicates that China's made the judgment that they cannot afford to have Putin fail. Because in a sense, if Putin fails, that is a failure for Xi Jinping and ultimately a failure for this broader autocratic project. And if they, in fact, do go ahead doing this, or if there's credible evidence that they were prepared to, that's a sign that they were willing to take themselves out of the international system at a moment when they're, in fact, angling to become the next great power. So basically, Susan, are we looking at at a kind of a global reordering here that is sort of akin to what happened in 1989? You know, people have sort of tossed around the scary phrase that this could be the beginning of World War III. You've got Putin pulling out of the last remaining arms control treaty with the United States. Do you see like the major sort of shifting of the plates here? Yeah, I I think for a long time, it's been clear that this has been a sort of uh, slow motion unraveling of the order, the immediate post-Cold War 
order and, uh, you know, essentially the undoing of 1989 has been kind of the big theme of our time. It's been missed, arguably, uh, with uh, distractions like a global war on terror post 9-11, but, you know, really this sort of uh, great uh, victory that the United States perceived at the end of the Cold War uh, doesn't look quite the same now that you have uh, something like uh, 15 or more straight years of decline in global democracy, according to Freedom House. And you have essentially this new contest between the authoritarian world and the democratic world, as Biden has often framed it. And if, if there is a conflict between autocracies and democracies, this is the front line right here, right now in Ukraine. You don't get to pick, uh, you know, these, these fights necessarily. And again and again and again, what's so striking is how Putin in particular, is has been at pains from the very beginning of this to frame it as a war, not between Russia and Ukraine, but as a war between Russia and the West. And there is a certain point where you sort of say, like, well, we might not want to consider ourselves in World War III, but if the other side does, uh, then does, you know, how much does it really matter that we haven't <laughs> come to terms with it? That was the uh, very controversial conclusion that my friend uh, Fiona Hill had. She argued, well, we're already in some ways in World War III, at least according to Vladimir Putin. I mean, I do think the danger level here, uh, you know, has just escalated, which is why Evan's point about China is uh, so concerning right now. I mean, Putin in his speech to mark one year anniversary, he talked crazy talk. I mean, let's crazy talk about the totalitarian United States and the neo-Nazis and Ukraine and the idea that the United States and NATO and Ukraine started this war. It is if it is not only a lie, it is a, a dangerous, fantastical kind of a lie. Yeah. On the very day that Putin was giving that speech, it's worth reminding ourselves that none other than Wang Yi, the most senior Chinese diplomat, was landing in Moscow. He had a meeting with Putin's senior national security aide in which he described their relationship as rock solid. So if you're counting on China to back out of this conflict, uh, you're going to be waiting a long time. They're going the other way. Basically, what we've got is tremendously rising risk factors on the global level and at the same time declining, though slowly, but declining measurably support for the U.S. role in this conflict. And what could go wrong? Um, <laughs> so. I, I'm curious, Jen, you've seen a lot of these different moments in Washington. You've also seen a lot of things in foreign affairs. And I'm curious what has surprised you about the way that this last year, obviously, we've all been stunned by the kind of strategic outcome uh, so far. But if you look at somebody like Volodymyr Zelensky, I, I'm, I'm just how do you make sense of how wrong we got him at the outset and how how extraordinary his performance has been. Well, I'm glad you asked that because the thing that you really shouldn't lose track of is how unbelievably unexpected and remarkable Ukraine's um, ability to survive this horrible assault from Russia has been. I mean, and and it's it in some ways it's incredibly inspirational about um, a, a, a tiny country that's fighting for its own independence and self determination. And I think, you know, there are many things you can fault Biden for, worry about his age and his ability to, you know, sort of function in the sort of more modern world than he started in. But but his his understanding of the importance of keeping the NATO coalition together and the amount of work he's put into doing that and how well it has stuck so far, despite against all the odds, 
um, has really also been very remarkable. And it, it's meant that Putin's gambles turned out exactly the opposite of what he hoped. Finland is in NATO now, and NATO is strong, and um, he is stuck in a quagmire that is an existential threat to his own leadership. I find it to be a kind of humbling moment as an analyst of these kinds of affairs and of of people. I mean, you know, look, we, we come up with these conventional notions of what leadership looks like, and now you see presidential aspirants that kind of try to put it on like a jacket and, and sort of try it out and walk it around, and it's nonsense. And sometimes you don't know who it is that's going to become um, – somebody of genuine bravery until the moment kind of summons them. Well, certainly all politicians everywhere are looking at Zelensky's uh, remarkable performance. This is a guy who, uh, we're talking about approval ratings in Ukraine. This is now all forgotten. Uh, He was supported by only something like 30% of the people in the run-up to this conflict. He was seen as a a failed president, uh, unable to keep his fractious society together. And so just to see him, I have to say, the week shouldn't end without going back to the beginning of it, because that was, as political choreography goes, probably the most remarkable visit by an American president, certainly in in a long, long time. Uh, and it was just, uh, couldn't have been designed by the set designers with, with more perfection. To see Joe Biden, really the only president uh, to go into an active war zone without uh, the protection of a large number of U.S. troops walking in his aviator sunglasses down the street in Kiev with Zelensky and his sort of uh, fatigues by his side, the air raids siren blaring while Putin hunkers down, you know, with his sort of functionaries in Moscow. The optics of that were extraordinary. And it's a a kind of an amazing reminder that, you know, things don't always turn out as we expect. Well, just to flip our roles where Susan is usually the resident pessimist and I'm the kind of optimist about things, I will throw just a little cold water, which is that I am looking ahead to, um, with my eye more on the domestic politics. Um, This country in in recent years has had a um, repeat performance as being a fair weather friend when it comes to allies in trouble um, in complicated, you know, military situations. You know, I don't know how long the support will last. I do think that um, it's uh, it's not at all clear. The fate of Ukraine hangs in the balance right now. And uh, long-term U.S. and European support is not only not guaranteed, but those voices are going to grow louder and louder saying, where's the deal? Uh, get out. It's not our fight. Well, well we my, agree. Effort, my effort and optimism, <laughs> optimism. interrupted. <laughs> optimism I'm sure, interrupted. I'm sure this is not escape Zelensky either. That, um, yeah. That, you know, That's why he wants more weapons now. <laughs> You're going to see the escalation over the, the fighter jets. That's the next, uh, next round. Mm-hmm. You know, I had this eerie sensation as I was watching the sight of Zelensky and Biden in Kiev. Because I was with Biden in Kiev in 2014. I mean, we went to St. Michael's Monastery. I was covering him when he was vice president. And it's kind of a great reminder of how far and how almost unpredictable his path has been since then. There was this moment, you know, he was publicly at the time carrying the message of the Obama administration, which was we don't want to give you 
many weapons because of your corruption problems. You have to clean up your system. You know, the, he, as he said at the time, we basically told them we're going to give you radios and a little bit of help. And the look on their faces was, oh, my God. Privately, we now know that they were at the time there was this real debate going on within the Obama administration about how much uh, serious weaponry to give uh, to give the Ukrainians. There was a contingent. Uh, Biden was one of them who wanted to send javelins at the time. These are now essential pieces of the arsenal that Ukraine is relying upon. So, you know, I, I just think of it as you know, part of the whole meaning of this podcast, why we do it is because there are always layers and layers beneath what's on the surface. And you can't understand how Biden comes to this, how Zelensky comes to this, uh, how Trump comes to this without understanding some of that history and keeping it in mind. Totally true. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Jane Mayer. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia and Eli Cohen. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.